Hey, I know I haven't done this before, but um, I had such a great time talking with uh, my fellow filmmaker that we totally ran out of time. So as a result, I will be posting this particular episode in two parts. So bear with me, guys. <laughs> I had a lot of fun on this one. And we, um, like I said, time just kind of got away from us. So thank you so much for listening in. And here is part one for There's Something Wrong With The Children. It's Film Friday. You know what that means. It's time for some flicks and scripts with Jay Starks. Welcome, guys. Today, we discuss There's Something Wrong With The Children. Welcome back, all you cinephiles, film nerds, and movie aficionados, and welcome to Flicks and Scripts with Jay Starks. I am Jay Starks, the host of this podcast in which we break down films. Yes. And I am excited. Uh, I've been talking about this film um, for a while today, the one that we're, we're breaking down. And more importantly, this is going to be our third, that's right, third film of our Horror Ween here at Flicks and Scripts with Jay Starks. This is our month-long all horror films for every single October going forward until, you know, you guys tell me not to make this podcast anymore or I get too busy and then I can't do it anymore. But anyway, so yeah, thank you guys for joining me once again. We are talking There's Something Wrong With The Children today and I have my third guest that's right my third special guest this time he's a fellow filmmaker friend of mine he's a director of photography cinematographer dp camera dude whatever you want to call him so yeah he's going to be he also edits as well but um so that's his his big two i think we'll double check that once we get into the actual introductions but yeah let's uh kick off this pre-production segment and i want to thank you guys if you've listened to any of these podcasts in general but especially the ones for october i have realized they've been a little bit longer with other people on there so i'm gonna try to really restrict this pre-production segment and get right into the to the brass it's not brass tax is that what it is Whatever. Anyway, so let's uh, let's get into our pre-production breakdown here. So there is something wrong with the children. Apparently, according to IMDb Pro, uh, this film is not rated. Uh, that's what it says on here. Um, so 92 minutes. It came out in 2023. So this year, if you're listening to this and not this year, then it came out in 2023. <laughs> this is a horror mystery that at the time of this recording was on um, Amazon Prime. I believe it's a MGM Plus release. So uh, MGM Studios, you know, the big studio company. So part of their streaming thing. I don't know. I don't know. There's always all these streaming sites. have got. I don't know who's what or whatever. Anywho, this is a Blumhouse production. So Let's get into some of our uh, some of our top stuff as soon as we hit this log line. So log line says <clears throat> I got to clear my throat so I could get real, you know, so I get extra bassy on them. You know, what I'm saying extra horror, creepy like 
A family takes a weekend trip with longtime friends and their two young children, but they suspect something supernatural when the kids behave strangely after disappearing into the woods overnight. That's the log line. First of all, what? These kids were gone for the whole night? The whole night? Wow. Anywho, okay, so there's that. Um, I did see a trailer for this one, to be completely honest with you. And that was, I don't know, two or three months ago. So it might have been. I'm not sure exactly when this came out. Um, oh, it looks like January 17th. So I saw a trailer for this even before I officially launched this podcast. And I knew this was one of the films that I wanted to talk about. So let's um, get into some of our top uh, billing for cast and crew here. So this was directed by Roxanne Benjamin. So excited about that. This is our second female director in a row because, of course, we had Alexis Jack Now's clock last week. So awesome. Let's go. So she, Miss Roxanne Benjamin, is a writer, director, producer. I technically said that in the wrong way. You said director, writer, producer. Anywho, but yeah, so looks like she's done. I'm not familiar with. I haven't seen a lot of her stuff at all. Um, So in 2015, she was a director for different segments for Southbound in 2015. Let's see what's newer that she's done. Body at Brighton Rock. So she was the writer. She did all three director, producer, writer for that one. She did a short film in 2018 called Final Stop. And she also did where she directed, produced, and writer for XX or 20. I'm not sure. I haven't seen that one. So for 2017, it looks like it might have been. Um, what is that called? Like an analogy anthology series or something like that, because it says segment. So I'm guessing she might have wrote different portions of that. And she's directed some TV. She's directed. Wow. She so a lot. It seems like a lot of her film is horror based, more so or less. She's written by CAA. OK, um, she has a pre-production film called fall into darkness that's coming out soon so there's that um let's see so it looks like before then she also does some tv so she directed two episodes of one of us is lying not um, familiar with that one i've not watched pretty little liars but i'm aware of what that show is and <laughs> she directed an episode for that she directed an episode for nancy drew riverdale creep show so yeah i'm aware that some of the tv series that she has um directed so that's pretty cool so yeah so miss roxanne benjamin i'm eagerly awaiting to uh to see what you got for this one it was written by tj klimfell and david white so we got a dual uh writing situation here and mr david white was known for if in case you've seen vhs viral he was one of the top credited people for that one as well as tj simfield so it seems as though i believe it looks as though they might be writing partners so they write often together so that's pretty cool um yeah and also pretty much horror-based writers so that's awesome hopefully this would be good what i really what really attracted me to this was the the cast that I saw. That's what I'm really excited about. But we're going to get to that in one second. Uh, I'm jumping the gun here. So our producers are Paige, Paige Pemberton and Paul Udo. Um, Paul Udo uh, was, a let's see, 10 Cloverfield Lane, The Expendables, Fantastic Four. So definitely have some stuff here. Paige Pemberton, The First Purge, Fire with Fire, which I'm not aware of, and The Whole Truth which I'm also not aware of. 
So they've done a little bit of everything as well, too. So that's pretty cool. The composer for this one is, and I kid you not, they're credited as the gifted. I don't know. I had to do the dramatic pause. That's actually kind of cool. That's fucking, that's badass. I don't know why. That's pretty cool. I'm curious. Have they always like gone by that? Like, <laughs> like, is this like, is this a uh, part of the ego or what? I don't know. That's cool. Anyway. So it looks like they were a composer for ready or not. Um, that was a horror film. Well, I guess, yeah, the action comedy horror, um, that came out in 2019. So that one, Scream 6, they were the uncredited for additional music composer. Um, Scream, like the 2022 one, which is a reboot sequel, a resequel or something. I don't know. The Rage Carry 2. So it seems like uh, his neck of the woods is primarily horror of some sort. So that ought to be interesting. That's pretty cool. Cinematographer is Yaron Levy, unless that's Levi, it's L-E-V-Y, but yeah, so uh, cinematographer, yeah, they did Scream the TV series, oh my goodness, been working for a while here, Universal Soldier, Day of Reckoning, the DP for that, and that was in 2012, people, that's crazy, they were also, oh, that's pretty cool, they were the gaffer for Saw, as in the original, as that's my um yeah anyway so <laughs> the gaffer for that so they've been moving up the ranks there editing by andrew drazik and also the universal soldiers so i'm assuming yaron and you and andrew have worked together i hope it's yaron it's y-a-r-o-n it could be you know pronounced some other way so i apologize uh let's see production design by al martin dwyer but they were credited as, that's an interesting name, Owl. Anyway, they're credited as Ryan Martin Dwyer. So is Owl or Ryan their actual first name? Hmm. Anyway, uh, set dresser for Deja Vu with Denzel or Denzel in 2006. Fantastic Four, they were the on-set dresser. Oh, that's, you know, kind of like what I'm doing. 10 Cloverfield Lane. They were on set dresser for that one as well. Okay, so it looks like before they were, they used the credit as Ryan Martin Dwyer. And then at some point in time, they switched to Owl, which is interesting. I'm really curious about this now. After this film, I will be looking up to see why they switched their name over the credit. But yeah, they were also on set dresser for Get Hard, The Culling. Old Boy, as in the 2013 version, um, directed by Mr. Spike Lee, starring Josh Brolin. The Butler, there was set dresser, Django Unchained set dresser. So you got you got some 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 credits on there as far as in the art department. So good on you, good on you, sir. All right, now let's get into the <laughs> let's get into the top build cast here. So we have Miss Alicia Wainwright. She's playing Margaret Winslow in here, and she was known for Raisin Dion, in case you're familiar with that. So, young African-American um, actress, really good in there. Miss Amanda Crew, who is playing Ellie Huerta, and she was in The Haunting in Connecticut, which I did not see. I'm aware of that one, but I saw it, I think, was I working in movie theaters at this time? I think I was. And I was like, I'm not going to watch that. I'm not going to watch that. I didn't hear the best things about it from people that were watching it. 
Anywho, we have Carlos Santos, who plays Tomas Huerta. Um, is Thomas, whatever, you know. But they were in Gentrified. So that's pretty cool. Okay. And Zach Guilford. Zach Guilford plays Ben. That's it. It's just it's just one name. You only get one name for his character. All the other characters have multiple names, which is hilarious to me, except for him. Now, Zach Guilford uh, was in The Purge Anarchy. And for any of those people who have Netflix, he's done Mr. Mike Flanagan's. Um, what's it called? The Flanagan verse situation. Uh, a couple. Of, he's done a couple of those, I want to say. I'm trying to remember the name of it. It was the one with the the priest. And man, what is that one called? Midnight Club. Yeah, so he's in Midnight Mass is what it was called. So Zach Guilford, uh, as I was saying, was in uh, Midnight Mass, which was amazing. I absolutely love that that limited run series by Mike Flanagan. It was probably one of my favorites outside of the very first one. But anyway, so he was in that uh, and the Midnight Club as well. I think he played like the, I guess, what do you call him? The... Not the nurse, the orderly in the Midnight Club as well, too. So, yeah, that was part of the reason. One of the main reasons I got excited about watching this is because I actually really like his performances and his acting. He he has this subtle, torturous kind of look and feel to everything that he does, which is not a complaint. So, anyway, I saw he was in it, got excited, and saw Blumhouse was producing it. So, yeah, let's... um. I think that's all I need to say about it, right? Anyway, like I said, let's keep this nice and short. Thank you guys so much for listening to this pre-production segment. We're going to come back after the intermission. Intermission will be a little teaser about what we got coming up next. After that, we'll bring on our special guest, and we are going to talk. There's something wrong with the children. Hey, thank you guys so much for listening in for the the pre-production segment of Scripts and Flicks with Jay Starks. Before we we kick off in the post-production segment, desire intermission segment, as you may know. So we're going to give you a little teaser about the upcoming film for the very last episode for Horrorween this month. And most importantly, I'm going to be introducing a close friend of mine who is my special guest for today's episode. So. Um, I think we'll kick that off. Let's see. Is there anything else I need to say? Not that I can think of. All right. So, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, cinephiles, film nerds, and movie aficionados, please welcome a close friend of mine, Mr. Chance Briley. Hey, thanks for having me. Um, I'm super excited to be on this podcast. Um, I've seen, you know, when you had talked to me about the idea initially, I I was super pumped about being on it. And, of course, I was like... I got to be on it. I got to get an episode. So <laughs> as soon as you finally hit me up and we're like, dude, do you want to come on? I was like, yes, of course I want to come on. <laughs> Definitely. That's pretty much exactly how it went. There's one, like I will say admittedly, guys, um, everyone is listening. I have not known Chance that long. What has it been? Maybe two, three years? Because COVID messed up everything. So, you know, you kind of fucking forget the whatever. But how, yeah, how long have we known each other roughly? Wow, it really hasn't even been that long because I, I was actually just thinking about it the other day because I remember I remember, I had worked on a commercial for Le Chat Noir. I worked on their commercial for, it was the um, 
what was it? It was the play that goes wrong. Oh yeah. And I remember working on that first commercial and you know, when, when Chris kind of unveils that that's the play that, that Lachat's going to be doing. And mm-hmm. I remember working on that commercial. And at that point I really hadn't met anyone from the Lachat crowd. And so I remember yeah, that sounds about right. Kind of, yeah. you know, getting to meet everybody before I actually met them. So, you know, I, I kind of knew any, knew everybody before everybody knew me um uh, so it was, it was kind of funny because I, I feel like i knew you before i actually even knew you um oh, yeah. and that was only oh god that was only what a year or two ago yeah because we shut down because of covid and it was like when we were coming back with a half a season and yeah there was a special promo that the proprietor chris bailey wanted to shoot as kind of a teaser for the that they were opening back up to Please. So yeah, yeah, year and a half, if if that. So yeah. Well, the the reason I asked that was because what I find super interesting, and I'm not just saying this um because we're recording, because you know I have had many a conversation and I feel as though that we always talk candidly, generally speaking, but especially about films. But I was asking that because I wanted to point out the point like the guy I had before, we've been friends for I don't know, who knows how long, almost a decade or whatever. But you and I have this it's the reason why I do like this podcast and why I love film. And I mentioned a couple of episodes ago that, you know, you can go and watch a movie theater with 400 strangers and everybody can have that unique experience right there at that moment. And then they go back to their walk of life. And it doesn't matter your ethnic background, your religious background, your socioeconomic status. It's just what movies do. And the point of me asking about how long we know each other is because our connection was, like you said, I think that was the first time. And then I think I saw you next uh, during, I think it might have been the Black Cat Picture Show, the the film festival in Augusta, Georgia, that we help out with. So, yeah, like you said, rather quickly, but that's just the... I know it sounds cheesy, but it's the power of fucking film and like art, like just bringing people together. And I just think it's fucking cool. Anyway, yeah. um, so sorry... Sorry, guys, I was just gushing over film once again. And like I said, how we just kind of instantly clicked so much so that this is the the gentleman that we're, we're about to ask him about any other projects he has coming up. But I know that I talked to you guys about a film that I helped executive produce, um, co-wrote and acted in called Above My Pay Grade that's going to be coming out after the festival run. But this gentleman was kind enough to help me out on that. So he DP'd the thing and it was it was a good experience for me. And I felt, uh, uh, you know, instant relief having such strong people. And eventually I'll have the director on as well. But having you guys on the film was amazing. Like I said, we we met fairly um, recently, but our connection over film and that energy, that's why we ended up working together on Above My Pay Grade, that you dp'd and are doing the heavy lifting of editing so just a one sentence blurb you don't have to give anything away because i plan to bring all of you guys back on hopefully in the future but just a quick how's it going on on your end so it's going it's actually it's going really well um you know we i mean i was you know kind of worried that you know just the the, because it's a it's a pretty big undertaking i mean this is probably one of the longest uh, films that I've worked on so far as far as, um, I mean, both DPing and editing. Mm. So, I mean, you know, I knew that taking on this challenge, it was going to be, it was going to be a pretty decent undertaking. And, 
but any but i mean so far it's going really really well uh we've got you know several cuts you know several cuts gone through already and so i'm actually on you know that that third or fourth round of you know notes mm. and i really feel like you know we're getting pretty close to that kind of picture picture lock i mean you know they say oh, picture nice. lock's a myth anyways but yeah <laughs> you know we're, we're getting pretty close to i think a cut that you know you know the director's really happy with that i'm really happy with okay that i think everybody's going to be really really happy with um oh, cool. so you know and then well, i mean once we get that cut locked down it's going to be you know just getting the grade locked down getting the the sound sweetened getting you know mm. get, touching up the vfx so i mean it is definitely coming along together very nicely nice well hopefully like i said we'll have you back along with the director and we can kind of all talk about it maybe another special guest so we're not going to give him too much, but thank you. Um, and last but not least, is there any, so that's what you have coming up down the pipeline. Do you have anything that's possibly available now or something that's doing a festival run, anything that you're working on currently? So not currently. Most of the stuff that I'm doing right now currently is it's all commercial work. Okay. Um, so I mainly focus on, I mainly do commercial work, but I did recently, um, shoot uh or or, you know i was a camera operator i should say on uh a new film by kenneth perkins okay Uh, and i believe they just wrapped filming on that so he's going to be starting post soon and that should be coming out um i want to say that one's i think that one's another long one i think that one's about a 20 30 minute film so that he'll i think he's probably going to take his time on that i think that's going to be coming out next summer Cool. Yeah. Kenneth Perkins, he's a, a local filmmaker in the uh, CSRA. And if you're outside of the CSRA is in the around the Aiken, North Augusta, Augusta region, Augusta, where the Masters is. So, yeah, um, another uh, Mr. Kenneth Perkins of the Fail Safe Productions. So he's a writer, director, editor, um, pretty much, you know, like a lot of us indie folks, kind of a jack of all trades. So, yeah. And I've worked with him as well. So it'll be interesting. Maybe we can have him on. Maybe that maybe that'll be a thing. Like once it, you know, you keep me updated or what have you. And then we'll have see if he's will come on board to help review something and then kind of plug his film. That'll be kind of cool. And last but not least, I don't know if I said that already, but can you give us just a brief a brief background on what it is that you do, your, your expertise, so to speak? Are you just you know the um what's the rodriguez where you just like fuck it pick up a camera and go did you go to school for it how'd you how'd you fall into this this art trap that we all have kind of tumbled into sure yeah so i um i went to college for it i went to um i didn't go to a film school i went to a public university i went to georgia state university in atlanta georgia and i just uh, you know i got a just a a film video degree Um, okay and after I finished at Georgia State, I ended up getting a couple of certifications in Avid Media Composer. So I really was delving into post-production uh, and the post-production workflow. So I'm actually, uh, I actually hold a couple of certifications with Avid Media Composer. So learning to cut on, you know, the software that they're using out in Hollywood. Oh um, yeah, that was a really unique experience. And then after that, um, after that, it was a little bit slow for a little while. You know, it was really. I think, you know, one of the things that I, one of the big takeaways I had from kind of starting out in this career field is that, you know, 
everybody's pathway is going to be a little bit different and everybody's mm-hmm. kind of foray into this career field is is going to be a little bit different. Everybody has to kind of find their own way. I found though probably the most valuable thing that you can ever bring to the table is going to be your experience and probably much more so your experience than your education. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. There's there's so many people who who went to you know, public universities like I did, then there's people that went to film school, but I find ultimately like, you know, one of the things that I've kind of found is, is that most of the the time that I've ended up working with, you know, working with somebody or been offered a job or, you know, what have you, is usually because of something else I worked on and not because like nobody's ever been like, cool degree, man. Like, cool that you know how to do this. Like, you know, Let's work together. People want to see, see what you've done. Yeah. Um, and so, so it is cool to have that education for sure. And I obviously I don't want to devalue that or, or you know discourage anybody from pursuing that if that's something that they want to do. But mm-hmm. definitely, I think that um, you know probably probably one of the most important things I've learned is is that um, the experience is everything. So it was a little bit tricky at first because you know if you don't have experience, then you know how do you get hired? The the catch twenty two of the filmmaking world. Yeah, one hundred percent. Absolutely. And so it was, you know, so, but I found that that was it, you know, I just had to to pick up a camera and start learning. And mm. so that's what I did. So shortly, so once I, after I graduated, um, I ended up picking up, I, you know, I, I started delving in, I was looking at what cameras people were using and, and how to, to start. I ended up getting myself a, a black magic and I started investing into that and, and I just learned to use it. I mean, I just, mm. I just went crazy. I just started, you know, I was practicing all the time and for anybody that uses black magic, you know, that, you, you know, before the, the pros came out, you know, you really had to rig those things up, but I did, oh, yeah. I, I rigged mine out. I had a big rig, but I mm. carried that thing everywhere. Yeah. And I mean, yeah. I was just any, any opportunity I had, I was shooting. And so I learned how to shoot. I learned how to edit. I learned how to color grade and kind of as I started getting more experience, you know, then I got my first job. Um, and, and, you know, that led to the second job, which led to the third job, which is now even learned to a fourth job. So, I mean, it's just, it is really just spiraled from there. Nice. You know, what I, what I really love what you were saying was the difference in how pretty much what I was getting from that is you still just have to do the work. It doesn't matter where or not you go to film school, public school, or what have you. And, I love that you said that because me personally, I didn't I did not go to film school and I went to Augusta State University as a as an actor. So I went for, you know, performance kind of sort of. And I got roped into the writing, directing. I, I've edited it before, but I would never I would never get accreditations. I'm not an editor, <laughs> but I've done, like you said, a little bit of everything, you know, and I've worked on other sets gaffing before I've done sound etc etc and yes i agree 100 percent. that is about the experience and how much you put into it that you would get back from it i think that's that is 100 percent the key so that's cool awesome awesome all right well that's it guys thank you so much that was the intermission so stay tuned for the post-production but before we leave we give you all a little sneak peek at what we got coming up next week next week we're going to finish out our horween month special with it lives inside it's currently in the movie theater so out of the four that we did this month this will be the first one in the movie theaters and i'm hoping to have a special guest on 
to round out that last day of Halloween. Well, the last day of Halloween over here at Flicks and Scripts with Jay Starks. So thank you so much, guys, for listening in. And next time when we come back, it's going to be our post-production breakdown. Welcome back, guys, to our post-production breakdown for There's Something Wrong With The Children, which I think is... The, the movie with the second longest title so far since we started this Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1 I think is definitely holds the record but anyway welcome back everybody um, so now this is our post production breakdown I, I, I've been talking about this film for a, a while now I even mentioned that even before I did this podcast I saw like a trailer for this and I was like that's one of the films that I need to talk about um, it just had this interesting look about it that I was excited for. So I'm really, really super pumped about this one. So I guess let's go ahead and break it down. There's something wrong with the children, which is a MGM streaming release. Cause I think officially it's MGM plus whatever. I don't know. It's too many to keep track of what have you. <laughs> Anywho. All right. So normally we kind of start breaking down with some more of the technical aspects. So I feel normally now, I start off with production design because I do art department a lot in, you know, the commercial and feature film world for my survival job. But since we have a DP on this time, we're going to start off with some camera, if that's okay with you. Oh, yes, absolutely. Okay, let's, t- let's talk let's, about it. Let's switch it up. First of all, before we start now, you being a DP cinematographer. Now, I know like the antiquated thing. The cinematographer is somebody who also operates. Correct. And a DP is someone who helps come up with the look. But nowadays, the line is so blurred. Does it really even matter to you at this point in time? Not really. I mean, as a like. With my experience, and I mean, you know, again, consider, you know, I've really done, you know, it's it's all indie stuff, really small scale mm. stuff. So all the projects I've worked on that I've, you know, DP'd, I've operated. So, yeah, exactly. And what I, I seem to be finding that I don't know, like, eventually I'm going to start going back into older films as well to see if there is. Because I know when I first started, I didn't think it was a difference. I thought they would just use interchangeably. But I do feel as though nowadays... And that may be the reason that they're used so interchangeably by, I don't know if it's because of the usage of digital cameras or just, you know, an evolution in the film world. But most, a lot of DPs also camera ops. So that's why you just kind of use them interchangeably more so. And I just wonder like back, you know, back in the heyday or whatever, way before our time, was it more separated? You know, it was a DP coming up to look in the lighting and blah, 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 and then having a separate person to shoot so anyway but just curious okay so yeah let's um let's start off with some cinematography so uh this is your special so yeah what do you uh what what did you think about the cinematography for there's something wrong with the children so right off the bat i mean one of the things that i you know it's it's got a very it's got a very nice look i mean one mm-hmm. of the things that caught my attention off the bat was um I couldn't, I found myself when I was watching the film, I couldn't tell, I almost couldn't tell if it was, if they shot it on spherical lenses or anamorphic lenses. And that's, mm-hmm. that's, it's one of my favorite things to, to look for because I always love when I can watch, you know, a film and go, oh, uh, they shot those on, you know, the, the cook anamorphics and it looks so beautiful and blah, 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 yeah. blah. Now, now real quick before we get 
get further along. I that's one of the subjects I haven't hit upon. So can you give us a super quick breakdown of the difference? For example, if it's not a, a movie buff or someone who works within the film, if there's the casual viewer, is there a way that they can recognize, uh, you know, a little hint of that this may be spherical versus anamorphic? Absolutely. So with so I'll try to keep it brief. I'll try to get not too too in the weeds. The difference between spherical and anamorphic lenses is on the back of the lens where the um where the lens kind of meets the sensor of the camera or the mount of the camera. Mm-hmm. Uh, that opening is a different shape. So, you know, spherical it's going to be a circular opening and anamorphic I think it's usually it's oblong. And mm-hmm. so what you see is so when you're watching a film what you can tell is is a anamorphic lenses typically kind of compress the image that's coming into the camera and then in post-production what you do is you kind of pull that image back out almost like taffy um Mm -hmm. and so what you see is is that typically if a movie is shot on anamorphic lenses you typically see it in that widescreen aspect ratio so a lot of times sometimes when you're watching a film and you see that the film takes up the whole screen and there's no kind of border typically that's probably going to be shot on a spherical lens because you know, especially with, you know, kind of the digital age, you know, mm-hmm. there, you know, people are just shooting without, you know, kind of the full resolution of the sensor. Yeah. Um, when you're shooting on anamorphic lenses, typically, you know, because it's compressed and you're, you're kind of pulling it back out, you see that those tend to be in widescreen because that way you're actually seeing the full image that's being captured. Uh, another mm-hmm. way that you can tell is, is the bokeh. So when you see, you know, a lot of those shots with a shallow depth of field, when you're shooting on a spherical lens, you'll see that the bokeh is a nice, pretty circle. But when you see an anamor- a film shot on an anamorphic lens, that bokeh is kind of that oblong shape. Mm-hmm. Now, I know what you're talking about for bokeh. So let's, before we get into the rabbit's hole, but bokeh. Um, so you mentioned the, the depth of field. So that shallow blurriness between what's in focus and out of focus. But can you explain just super quick what bokeh is if somebody was watching something and didn't know what it was? So bokeh is typically what happens is when you are capturing um, lights in the background, mm-hmm. you know, so like, let's say if you, you know, if you really, really just want to focus on your subject, you know, you, you kind of, you, you open up your aperture really, really wide. To, to let more, to let more light in, correct? Exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So you're letting more light into the camera. And then what happens is, is when you're setting your focus on something that's really close to you, the lights that are behind you kind of bloom out into these soft circles of light. Mm. Gotcha, gotcha. Okay, so guys, all you folks that's listening that aren't super duper involved but want to learn more about film or just love film and just didn't quite know what that thing was that you saw, that's what bokeh is. And that's a quick little lesson on how to tell the difference between spherical and anamorphic. And, of course, the more you watch and the more you really get down to it, you'll be able to pick it up a lot easier. The part of the great thing about not working in the film industry or commercial industry is you can just look and really enjoy a film. But unfortunately, since I started doing so much in it, both in front and behind the camera, it's just like you were saying about looking for what type of lens, it just kind of pops into your head. So I sometimes wish I could just turn the brain off and go back to that. So more likely I have to watch films more than once. The first time I'm like, analyzing it second time okay let me go and just really enjoy this film so that's normal for me is that the same for you 
You know, it's actually, to me, that's actually part of the enjoyment of it because mm. I think, you know, when I'm watching it, you know, it's always kind of interesting because for me, you know, part of the enjoyment of the film is, is, you know, when I'm watching a movie, you know, my, the big thing at the end of it is, is like, what am I meant to take away from this? You know? Yes. And I think that, you know, it's going to sound weird, but in a very real way, like lens choice is a part of that, you know? Mm-hmm. Cause again, like, you know, when you have, you know, the anamorphic lenses and it's kind of pulling that image out and you get this wide screen, you know, a lot of times, you know, you kind of subconsciously associate that with a very cinematic look, right? Yes, yes. It, it reminds you of, of being at the movie theater and, and watching mm-hmm. a, 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 you know, you're watching a piece of cinema. And so, you know, when I, when I'm watching it and I, you know, am looking at the differences, you know, I'm like, this is part of it. Like, this is part of it. You know, what it, you know, what is the takeaway from it? What does the director want me to get out of this movie? You know, if, you know, the director made a very, the very intentional choice to shoot it on anamorphic lenses, maybe the director's, you know, trying to say like, I want you to think about this movie and, and associate it with, you know, cinema with, or, mm. you know, maybe, you know, the director saying, you know, I'm not, you know, I'm not necessarily trying to do that. You know, maybe the director yeah. saying, you know, no, like we're, you know, we're trying to make this a big experience, you know, and that's, you know, it comes into like large format, you know, you think about seeing yeah. a movie in IMAX and then that's, I mean, that's even more than a full screen, if you will, because you have to literally view it on a larger screen. Yes. And see that's, and yeah, and it even comes down to like one of the first episodes I did, if not the first episode was they cloned Tyrone on Netflix and I cannot stop gushing about that film. So much so that I had to like purposely cut myself short talking about it. But the choice um, to shoot on film, how it added that extra depth, that throwback feel, like you said, that throwback cinematic feel. And it just helped. And of course, for anybody who watches well, it's not necessarily a film that took place back at a certain time is kind of blurred along the lines of what they did for it follows, but it gave you that sense of feeling purposely to put you and your mind into that world. So yeah, definitely agree. Okay. Yeah. So anyway, um, so that's just, sorry. I know we got a little distracted by this. So yeah, um, back to cinematography and what you, what you thought overall and your impression about it. Yeah. So one of the other things I noticed and and this actually caught me is, and I don't know, it's not necessarily the cinematography. It was really the post-production, but I think, I guess related to the cinematography, the opening mm. shots um, just with that complete green filter over yeah. them. Yeah. I, I got to be honest. I was not a fan of that. Like when it came on, I was like, uh, I don't like this. But I, I felt like I got where they were going with like an old school vibe and feel when I was watching it. But I didn't like the green opening sequence until later on when I realized the connect where it connected and I was like, Oh man, I really like that seek that opening now. <laughs> so yeah, but go ahead. There is a lot of foreshadowing and it comes yes. in and it comes in, in a lot of different forms. And so, you know, I definitely think that the, the that kind of like, you know, that, that green filter almost, it seems over the mm-hmm. image, you know, just kind of is kind of a foreshadow for what ends up happening later. Mm-hmm. But I just thought it was interesting because my, my first thought is, is like, you know, when you're the, you know, if you're the DP who's shooting the film, yeah. You know, is that you know that's that's likely a decision that's not you know, whoever was editing the 
or I'm sorry, the director of the film probably didn't know at the very beginning that they were going to, you know, put that green filter over those first uh, couple yeah. of shots. So it's it's always funny to me to, you know, to think of like, did the DP know that that was going to happen? And if not, was the DP just a little annoyed when they saw that? <laughs> were they a little bit annoyed that they were like, cool, glad I spent all that time, you know, lighting it and, you know, yeah, white balancing and doing all this stuff just for them to throw that green filter and, and numerous takes and everything else. Yeah, that's funny. I didn't even think about that. That's 100% true. Because, yeah, that wouldn't... And especially you speaking from the, the point of view of a DP, that a lot of times, unless a DP is involved in the editing, which in this case, they were not, um, then a lot of times, or at least according to IMDb, he wasn't necessarily, necessarily in the room. But a lot of times, like you said, as soon as the work's in the can for you guys... Then it goes to the post houses and then you see how, you know, they may have helped or hindered what you what you captured on that day. So, yeah, I can I can definitely understand that. I wonder I wonder the the twitching that may have occurred in his seat as he watches that scene. He is like freaking out over there. So, um so yeah, that that's Mr. Yaron, or I might be, or Yaron. I'm sorry, Levy, but yeah, like I said, he's done. A, I mentioned in the pre-production breakdown, he's done a lot of horror-based things, and I really, I would agree. Um, as far as everything you were saying, I felt that the camera work was really put you into the headspace of what was going on. They they did do some fancy shit from time to time but i didn't hate it right i did feel as though it helped because i do i've said it before in other um, episodes that sometimes doing fancy camera work that doesn't help sell the story emotionally or from a you know um, physiologically physiological standpoint is just fancy camera work for fancy camera work's sake but like the bathroom um, god's eye that flipped over to essentially like a I don't know what was that over the over the head kind of when she was looking in the mirror. I really enjoyed that uh, that little bit in piece, even though it was extra, but it was a nice touch. But then I was also trying to figure out how they rigged this camera up on the, the ceiling. I was like, okay, man, that was a nice shot. That was how done. How was there somebody you know in the attic or was it camera opt or you know remote control? So that was a really cool one. Um, so yeah, I did. Now I will say. I will say I wasn't they went Dutch two, three or four times in the film and I wasn't the biggest fan. Yeah. Towards the end, I felt like like when he I believe when he came back to the cave, he um, who has been, by the way, uh, the character name and the Margaret Margot when they came back to the cave and they went Dutch with the court with the like quarter corkscrew. What is that? I don't know, two thirty degrees or whatever. I was like, okay. Ah, oh, I wish I saved one of those Dutches earlier for this. Cause a Dutch with the corkscrew would have been dope. But then by then I was like, okay, we've Dutched it enough guys. We get it. It's, it's very Dutch in here. So <laughs> now I will say, I actually really did enjoy that camera move because what I really liked about it. So I, I did notice. And even cause I think there's even, after the, you know, after the the shots in the beginning of the kids playing, you know, the first mm. angle goes from Dutch to kind of, and it writes itself as it yeah. settles over the house. Um, but one of the things, but I, but I actually really, really enjoyed the shot of, you know, when Ben's kind of going, when he's taking Margot and he's taking her back 
into kind of the the cave towards the hole i yeah. or the pit as they call it i um i actually really enjoyed that shot it reminded me almost of the hallway in inception because it's mm. i mean you're going you're going backwards and you're going dutch and i actually i mean i was watching it and it's very you know it's very rare that i you know kind of watch it and i'm like feel like i'm gonna throw up like i feel like i'm sick yeah but it does yeah. it 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 did like i actually felt like that that almost, feeling of unease it's que- like it made me queasy it made me yeah. queasy watching it but in a good way because i was you know as you know the kind of camera's coming back i'm like this is what you want like this is what it's for it mm-hmm. is creating that feeling of you know this is off something is wrong you know yeah and it's like if the, if ever there was you know kind of a shot that should be emblematic of the film you know the yeah. title being there's something wrong with the children like there is something wrong you know yeah yeah and i definitely agree i just wish that one of the previous dutch angles i just just saved it if they saved that and made that their biggest their their great release and i'm like like you know do a regular dutch but like, all right cool they did a dutch and they dutched and righted it side but then that one would have been so much more impactful yeah i did one of the shots that i did love and um as you already know and most of the people if you're listening then we don't watch any like bts because i don't want to ruin anything and i don't even look up what cameras they're shooting which sucks because then i'm still curious but i i personally thought and correct me if i'm wrong or if you or tell me if you agree or not but i kind of like the uh flip sam raimi shot that happened with the two kids and it was like dragging along you know the evil dead camera tracking that sam raimi did in the og evil dead but it was upside down so i feel as though they definitely borrowed that and made it their own you know like a lot of film does a lot of the great filmmakers do what do you what do you think did you get sam raimi vibes when you saw that because i immediately okay absolutely i actually the other day i just watched uh evil dead rise finally i didn't get to watch it in theaters like i wanted so i finally oh that's on my list and it was it was so good so of course you know having that kind of you know a little more more fresh in my brain immediately mm. as soon as i saw that shot i was just like oh that's a hundred percent this is the same Raimi fan right here because i mean it was it was it was 110 percent. it was it was definitely it, it seemed so evil dead inspired now i'll yeah. tell you this i actually i sit in a weird place with this because the cinematography mm. in me the cinematographer in me loves that shot oh yeah because i love that shot i always think it's it's like it's so it's such a fun shot and it's a very singular type of you know it's a very singular type of thing that I feel like, you know, the director's communicating with that shot. I yeah. will say the editor in me was so frustrated and annoyed with that shot. Really? Why is that? So so we're getting so getting away from the cinematography a little bit. So when it came to so in the context of the film, you know, they're dragging Margot, who is unconscious at this point, and they're dragging her to the pit. Mm-hmm. And at this point, it's like she survived the night mostly, you know, barely. <laughs> and <Yeah. laughs> at this point, they're dragging her, and it's kind of like dawn, right? You can see yes. that it's kind of the morning twilight. And then when that shot happens, it's daylight. Yeah, I I knew that's where you were going with it. <laughs> it was like it's it was really tricky for me because it's like, you know, in the context of the film, like. You know, they mentioned multiple times that the the kind of the what is it the fort or whatever it is that you know where the, the yeah. location where the pit is. They mentioned that it's it's kind of a hike, 
and they mention that it's pretty far away from their kind of encampment where they're they're you know uh, mm-hmm. you know kind of posted up camping out yeah but it's kind of hard to tell because you know like there's a you know there's there's a couple of times where they they journey to you know back and forth you know to yes. and from to and from the pit and watching it i always kind of have a hard time of figuring out how far away exactly it's supposed to be agreed agreed you know because they make mention of it multiple times or like it's a strenuous hike you know there's no way the kids could have done it by themselves because it takes so long but it was really hard for me to tell like how long exactly is it supposed to take and how far is it really supposed to be because there's the Mm -hmm. scene you know where ben is trying to convince margo he's like you know i definitely saw them you know fall into that pit he's like you gotta believe me you gotta come with me and so he's taking her back and they go and obviously when they cut you know, when they're there, you can tell that time has passed. Yes. But there's also nothing really in, you know, the, the characters. You know what I mean? Like, like they're mm. not, like, sweating and dirty and grimy like you would be after a long day of hiking. And yeah. there's no, you know, there's no really tell of, like, you know, you never see any of the hike. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, and I would completely agree because I know like the very first time when everybody was walking to it and like you said, they mentioned a couple of times of how long it is. But that initial scene um, with everybody walking, all what, six of them walking, mm-hmm. it, I'm not saying it should have lasted the entire time of the walk, but there were really ones, even if they grabbed some B-roll of it or something along those lines, it was not indicative of how long of a walk they had to take. I 100% agree. And then... Even when you flip to when Ben went out looking for the kids and he ran into down the path by himself, they showed him kind of doing a little jog or whatever. But by the time he got to the cave, like you say, you didn't see any um, preparation. Is that what the word is? Preparation? Is that the holes that you punch into something? Yeah. Perspiration. I don't know. Sweating. Um, He wasn't sweating or like out of breath. So I agree and that was one of the as much and I really loved that Sam Raimi shot. Oh, sorry. For anybody, Evil Dead that came out in the eighties, I believe. Um, if you watch Sam Raimi, he's the one who if you like Spider-Man, like OG Spider-Man, this is the guy who directed that. So go or if you watch what's the new um Wanda Curse of the whatever. The last um what's the magic guy from the superhero? The Doctor Strange. Doctor Strange. So if you like Doctor Strange and you like Spider Man, go back and watch Sam Raimi's first one. And he pretty much did a extremely low angle through the woods, almost just imagine if a small snake kind of sort of was slithering at a very fast pace. It was one of the first times the shot has been done, which is why a lot of time if you see it, it's the same people just say it's a Sam Raimi shot. So anyway, but back to um the Sam Raimi shot. I agree with the lighting because that was part of my issue as well. And especially towards the end, you really couldn't tell how much time had passed. Even to the point of when they uh, oh I want to call and say uh you know Ben murdered my child and then she came back, Margot came back and it was like dark as fuck. And I literally looked and I was like, has it been three hours yet? Like, what? I don't I don't know how much time has passed because and the cop still isn't there. And then by that point, she came back, did a search and then the cop showed up. So it's only two hours. Does it take two hours for that hike? It's a very weird thing. Like you were saying about time. And that is one of my bigger issues from I don't know if it's an editing standpoint that they had to shorten up some scenes or whatever else. But it is hard to tell 
exactly how far away that spot is from the house. It's very odd. Which, you know, and again, like, to me, that's not even necessarily a problem because, you know, I think, you know, again, like, where, you know, again, where I, I kind of run into that issue is, is this, like, you know, you have this kind of montage, you, you know, it's, it's interesting because it was like, it was almost like, it was, it, it felt to me almost like the director couldn't quite kill that darling because, you know, you have the shot where she's kind of regaining consciousness and they're dragging mm-hmm. her through the woods. And that's a fun shot. You know, that's yes. a fun shot because it does look like, it, it almost does look like somebody just dragged a person who was holding a camera. Yeah. You know, it, it kind it does, it does have a, a fun way of kind of putting you in that perspective, it, you know, putting you in that situation. Mm-hmm. And then that second shot comes and it's like, like, and, and, and the, and the thing that got me about it too, is, is that in the shot, all you see is it's just the two shot of the kids looking menacing, you know, like yeah. they, they don't have her, you know, they're not dragging her. It's not, you know, a, a continuation or, you know, it's not coverage of them dragging her. Yeah. That shot just kind of, it almost just kind of interrupts the flow. Yeah. It was just like, I feel a little as though it was like, oh, this would be a dope ass shot to do. Let's do it. Okay, cool. And like, yeah, it doesn't necessarily move the story along either way. It was just, here's some cool camera shit that we did. You know, watch this, you know. So, yeah, definitely agree. You know, it was like, it was one of those things where it's like, you know, even upon, you know, the first viewing, you know, I, I kind of watched it and I was like, ooh, that feels weird. Like, uh, you know, mm. kind of surprised that nobody, you know, looked at the edit and went, yeah, no, that doesn't really work. And it just kind of felt like the director was like, the shot staying in or you know oh, or else like <laughs> oh that's that's staying in do you know how long it took to set that up <laughs> yeah, that's right but like dude that shot was awesome that shot is the movie that shot is <laughs> staying in sorry it will make or break this entire film that's right <laughs> Alrighty, so let's. Uh, so we talked a little bit about some some uh, some cinematography, and we moved into editing, which I love the the smooth flow. Let's go into a little bit of production design. Um, I, for one, deeply, um, especially since when I first started, production design was not a thing I initially did a lot of when I first started doing my indies, and I have grown even before working, you know, on these films and commercials or what have you, but I've grown to truly appreciate production design because, because I, for my, it's almost like you were saying, like uh, the camera and lens helps to, and even the aspect ratio and your medium, are you shooting digital? Are you shooting film? Is it 16? Is it, you know, or what have you, or IMAX, then that helps tell the, the story. But I also believe that production design is just as tied to that because even if you have the best cinematographer in the world, but you're not selling that world with how said world looks, it can just throw your entire movie off. And it's also one of those things that I feel can make your product feel or seem dated unpurposely, if that makes sense. Like I was saying, um, 
It Follows was literally one of my favorite movies, if not my favorite movie of 2017. Um, that's how much I love that movie. I know what year it came out. Uh, but what I absolutely adored about that fucking film was there were station wagons in there and the girl was reading like essentially like an e-reader, but it was in the shape of a clamshell, which is like, okay, is this old school? Is this new school? What years does this take place in? And it has almost, I feel, until we really, you know, 20 years down the line, if all of us are dressing in all white gowns or all gray and, you know, <laughs> just homogenous, then I do feel as though right now it has a bit of a timelessness where it can happen at any time. And I always love films like that, that have that that storytelling element of this can happen whenever it doesn't matter how long ago you think it might have been. And I feel like with this one was something along those lines with that, that even the sound design and the score that they used and the, the feel had a very filmic to me, at least a very filmic look where I feel as though they were trying to have it where you don't know if it's 2023, you know, it could be any time within that frame. The only thing to show was an SUV and an old sheriff's truck. So I kind of really love films like to have that element of production design because it has lasting staying power to me personally, you know, um, it's, it's akin to, you know, like even myself being a film buff as much as I am, I cannot name a bunch of black and white films that I've seen off the top of my head. I've seen a lot, but I can't name them off the top of my head because I was in that age range where black and white really wasn't the thing that was happening. So it kind of already in my little brain as a kid, it dated that film and I was less interested in it. You know what I mean? And then once till I got older, I started watching more black and white. So I love when films do that. And I feel like the production design that they did for this really, really tapped into it. I don't feel like any of the clothing represented any particular time frame. I loved the, the orange and blues. Now, and I don't mean not orange and blues like I think is overly used sometimes to make your film look, you know, like a lot of times, like you were saying about cinematic, you throw those, you know, your your the teal your, orange look. <laughs> yeah, the teal orange and you put your 235 to one and be like, oh, cinematic. I'm like, no, that's not it. So but what I liked about this is they did use the the that teal orange. But it wasn't baked into the lighting, which is what I thought was interesting, or not as much. They did have some um, outside shots that had the orange, like some of the exterior lighting of the cabins, which kind of makes sense, um, especially since nowadays everything's LED. But having that bright white would be a little weird. So once again, adding a bit of timelessness to it. But what I really liked was the teal and orange was almost baked into the production design itself, the colors of the cabin, the the outfits that the characters wore, the wardrobe, should I say. And that was a pretty cool element to me. And I feel as though that green that you talked about kind of works in tandem. Like a lot of times you you have green and red together, which is on the official poster because of there's color theory. We might get into that later on, guys, if I have a production designer on. But the color theory, you know, you match your red and green, your tills, the oranges, things of that nature. But I feel as the way they did it with this, but instead of having the lighting and the gray be teal and orange, have it worked inside the clothing that when the green was happening or any um, elements of green, like the green from the electric fly buzzer killer thing, that it wasn't off putting or jarring. It kind of felt almost natural to the world if that makes sense or at least for me what what about you what did you think about the production design you know and i i actually you know i noticed that too i i 
think that it's a really interesting way of helping to create visual interest and create some depth because, you know, I noticed that too, that, you know, when they're kind of inside the cabin, you know, you've got the nice, there's lots of blue walls, there's lots of blue furniture, but you've also got, I mean, shoot, you've got you know, like the the kind of brown or the orange, you know, however, you yeah. know, the brown mm-hmm. orange cabinetry and like chairs and flooring, but then like they've got blue cups and plates. So it's like, you know, again, like even if it's not just the lighting, you know, yeah, they, they have all of those elements that are present inside the cabin itself, you know, creating that kind of complementary color scheme. And it just makes it, it just makes it nice. Like it makes it interesting to look at yeah. you know it's kind of yeah. creating depth within the image that you know to where you don't just it doesn't just get lost behind you yeah definitely yeah and and they like i think you mentioned it and i feel as though it was organically put which is in a good way because i'm pretty sure it was chosen that way um that because we just talked about tilling orange and the red and green, but even thinking back, like they're in the middle of, you know, a wooded area. That means they're surrounded by green, you know, brush and everything. And then you had this awesome fucking hoodie that this little girl wore that was red as shit. But when, yet again, you still got that red and green kind of complementing each other. But that, um, oh my God, I was, I don't know, like halfway through the film and I was like, I love this fucking hoodie great wardrobe choice it's just fantastic number one because it worked once like we were just saying with the production design and the coloring and how they they it was carefully chosen and i love that you know but that red like this pointy ear gives you a sense of automatic evil you know even if you don't believe in you know god or the devil or whatever the way the ears point has this very menacing uh devil-like feel to it you know what i mean and clearly i'm assuming that it was heavily purposeful but what i loved about it is it was big and fluffy almost akin to like a big ass teddy bear or some fluffy coat that's just really cool that a, you know a young girl her age would like you know what's the um on bob's burger uh and she has the pink bunny ear uh skull cap so it's like this appears and i feel as though it's something that if a little girl saw it on the shelf or in a commercial she would want it but then it has this menacing fucking feel to it because of the film and because of her performance which we'll get into in a in in a bit but yeah i absolutely that red hoodie was the shit to me I i know i just got really excited about it but yeah um yeah, the the costuming was as you mentioned. And I, I remember seeing one of the scenes and you were mentioning the red orange cabinetry that or should I say the orange brown cabinetry and how it 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 had that same feel, you know, the wood. And I just remember seeing like uh in the for the background had an orange light bouncing off some wood. The blue painted walls, then you had Ben there with the blue and you had um what's that little bastard name? The little kid, that little boy. Um, he, yeah, Spencer, and he had his blue one. And I was like, okay, blue, blue, blues. But it, it, the way they did it and the way the lighting was done, it did. You never, or at least for me, I never felt like I was awash in blues or whatever. It was just so subtly done, and I loved every every bit of that. I thought that was really nice. So, um, 
what what else do you want to say? You got anything else to say about production design? Yeah, absolutely. So I mean, you know, one of the things that I, you know, again, like one of the things that I just that I really appreciate about this film and that I really appreciate about, you know, kind of the direction they took with it is is that you know, when it came to kind of creating the visual look of the film, you know, there's contrast in in just about every scene. I mean, yeah. And I think that's why the first scenes were especially so jarring for me, you know, just the kids playing in the green filters because it's just so it's like asynchronous you know with the rest of the film. yeah yeah it, it's just it's such a stark contrast because the rest of the film i mean almost every single scene has just some element of really nice contrast or complementary yeah definitely. color scheme that's going on there so it's just you know it, it's just prevalent throughout the film and it just it's really nice because you can tell that it was you know meant to be interesting like it's meant to be not engaging at all yeah yeah definitely man yeah this is this was uh yeah this is a great film man Alrighty, folks, that's going to do it for today's episode, or should I say at least the first half of this episode. And in case you haven't been able to tell from this conversation, I am thoroughly enjoying myself as well as Chance. Um, just talking about film in general and really getting down to nuts and bolts of it. So I apologize uh, for the, the lengthy duration for this first part, but as promised, make sure to be on the lookout for the second half of this breakdown for there's something wrong with the children here with flicks and scripts with jay starks once again thank you so much chance for uh stopping by this was a fantastic conversation and i just love when other people can geek out about filmmaking shit like i do so uh the next one will be dropping guys uh the part two um it won't be you won't have to wait a whole week so I'm just letting you know that right now. I think, you know, we might drop it on Tuesday. Let's drop it Tuesday. I think that that might be the, the idea. So, yeah, um, stick around for part two as we finish up. There is something wrong with the children. Thank you guys for listening. <laughs>